Happy New Year and welcome to Not Boring. I hope that everybody had a great holiday break, is refreshed, recharged, got a chance to hang out with family. Hopefully, uh, unlike me, none of you got COVID. Either way, it's January 3rd, 2022, and we are back. I am tremendously excited for this year. I have to be honest with all of you. It was a little bit hard to get back into writing after just kind of relaxing and reading and hanging out and eating, but we did it. There is an essay coming up in a second, but before we get there, I want to reintroduce you to the presenting sponsor for all of this quarter's Monday Essay Podcasts. It's a sponsor that you know well, and hopefully a company that you've invested with before, Masterworks. Now, I have a confession to make. I can't stop investing in art. It started small. I invested in Basquiat's Loin in 2020, and I got hooked. Today, there are 10 paintings in the Not Boring portfolio. I recently added the Picasso masterpiece, which you can check in in this very funny image at notboring.co that the Masterworks team made for me. The Picasso work is in that image. You should go check it out. But instead of breaking my addiction, my New Year's resolution is to double down and buy as much art as possible because I believe that art is a key part of a balanced portfolio. Here's why. UBS reports that two-thirds of high-net-worth collectors buy art for an expected ROI. Real assets like art appreciate well during periods of high inflation. <clears throat> and blue-chip art prices outpace the S&P 500 from 1995 to 2021, according to Citi. But even though I'm really bullish, I didn't throw down $100 million at auction to buy my 10 works. I just used Masterworks. They're the fintech unicorn that lets you invest in multi-million dollar works at a fraction of the cost. And Masterworks has the results to back it up. They've sold two paintings that netted their investors a 30% plus IRR in 2020 and 2021. Now, their offerings tend to sell quickly. Last week, I tried to invest in their new $7.4 million Banksy painting, but it sold out in less than three hours, and I missed out. No time like the present. If you want to join me on the platform and get priority access, then you can go to masterworks.io slash notboring. That's masterworks.io slash notboring. And you can see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash about. Now, let's get to it. The Laboratory for Complex Problems. 2022 is the year that Web3 starts making a meaningful impact on atoms-based challenges like healthcare and climate. Now, thus far, Web3 has been focused on bits, on creating a user-owned internet by infusing physical properties like scarcity, uniqueness, ownership, and self-custody into digital items. That's an important track. As more of our time, money, relationships, and work goes digital, it's important that we have the right to own as well as rent. But all the wild shit in Web3 also serves another purpose. In the immortal words of Alan Iverson, we're talking about practice, not a game. Not the game that I go out there and die and play every game like it's my last. Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. Expensive apes? Practice. Constitution Dow? Practice. Krauss House? We're talking about practice. Ohm? Practice. Meme coins? Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. Will the world be a better, more fair, and equitable place if my friend Brett succeeds and Frysdow buys a subway? No, almost certainly not. But we might learn something about organizing groups of people around a shared mission on the internet that we can apply to the real game. And we might make some more internet millionaires who can fund new projects. Practice. Every time a new NFT project comes together and falls apart, every time people ape into a seemingly worthless meme, and every time a DAO makes a subtle innovation in an attempt to circumvent some constraint, 
the whole system evolves and it produces new tools and tricks that entrepreneurs and policymakers can use to attempt to solve large, thorny problems, both digital and physical. This view of Web3 is different than the idea of owning the internet. It's less about decentralization and censorship resistance, and more about rapid experimentation of governance and incentive models. It harnesses greed and speculation for good. In this view, Web3 is a global, real-money economic and social simulation, a digital laboratory for complex problems. To date, the focus and excitement around Web3 has been on the bit side, specifically around ownership of digital items and governance among large groups of internet strangers. Meanwhile, an added benefit is that every new NFT project, novel DAO, DeFi mechanism, and even meme coin is a digital experiment being run in real time that can also feed back into the world of atoms to help coordinate and incentivize large groups of people to solve hairy challenges. On the bit side, we're building a new digital economy, and each attempt is also an experiment. On the atom side, you can pull the best mechanisms in to solve challenging physical world problems. And importantly, the digital pieces have value. The total crypto market cap passed $3 trillion this year. Constitution Dow raised $47 million. The three pictures of a punk, an ape, and a chromie squiggle that I put in the post at notboring.co, those three pictures alone are worth $18 million. There's real money on the line, which makes people behave like it's the real thing. The fact that these are high priced but ultimately low stakes, as in the world won't end if the Board Ape Yacht Club disappeared, projects is a feature, not a bug. These projects combine internet iteration speed with real-world huge sums of money to let humanity speedrun simulations on group coordination, all while picking up specific tools to help address hard problems. Web3 is certainly good at one thing, hurtling large groups of people and money at arbitrary causes. Time to harness that superpower. From squiggles to a cure for cancer, apes to carbon reduction, punks to saving the fishes, that's a big leap. Now, how to get here? Complexity. Over the break, I asked people on Twitter for the one book or essay that they'd recommend to get ready for the next decade. I wanted to zoom out a bit, think about atoms more than bits for a change, and shake my brain up. Complexity, the Emerging Science at the Edge of Order and Chaos by M. Mitchell Waldrop won. On the surface, it's a funny winner of the Prepare for the Next Decade contest. Waldrop wrote the book 30 years ago, in 1992. It's not new enough to be expressly written for the next decade and not old enough to sit among the timeless classics that work in any decade. But the crowds are wise. It was an excellent pick. Complexity tells the history of complex system science through the stories of the founders of the Santa Fe Institute, a research institute in Santa Fe that is devoted to the study of complexity in all its forms. 30 years later, SFI is still running and complex system science is still relevant. In October, the 2021 Nobel Prize in Physics went to three scientists quote, for groundbreaking contributions to our understanding of complex systems, end quote, used to create more accurate models of the effect of global warming on the climate. Complex systems are everywhere, from the climate to the human brain, to the power grid, to the economy, to the beginning of life on this planet, from the primordial stew of molecules. They're devilishly hard to capture in models and differential equations, but crucially important to understand. Before complex system science, the prevailing approach to understanding these complex systems was reductionism breaking them down into their component parts and trying to build a complete picture by adding together each piece. Challenge is, complex systems do all sorts of things that can't be predicted by looking at each piece. They're emergent. The whole is greater and different than the sum of its parts. And incidentally, I think that many of the anti-Web3 arguments miss by being overly reductionist. I'm actually pretty sure that the midwit meme is just reductionism in the middle versus complexity on the right. Anyway, 
take economics. The economics that I studied in college, except for one frisky behavioral economics course, assumes that economic man is perfectly rational and seeks to fit the economy into a series of differential equations and supply-demand curves on top of those assumptions. It seeks equilibrium. It's mathematically elegant, all fits together, and is pretty much entirely disconnected from reality. The real economy, like most complex systems, doesn't reach equilibrium. It evolves, based on the actions, rational and irrational, of its billions of individual participants. Cracking the status quo shortcomings and armed with the heretical idea of increasing returns, the concept familiar to all of us in tech today, but much less accepted in the early 1980s, Stanford economist Brian Author set out to create a new economic framework at Santa Fe. The stakes were more than academic. The world was coming out of a painful period of stagflation in the 1970s that called into question the Keynesians' ability to stabilize the economy. A more realistic economic framework would help policymakers and financiers design interventions that would stimulate growth and employment, stabilize the market, and better achieve the goals of their fiscal and monetary programs. So instead of differential equations based on assumptions, Arthur proposed agent-based simulations. Quote, I had this notion that you could have within your office, in the university, a little peasant economy developing under a bubble of glass. Of course, it would really be in a computer, but it would have all these little agents pre-programmed to get smart and interact with each other. Then in this dreamlike idea, you'd go in one morning and say, hey, look at these guys. Two or three weeks ago, all they were doing was bartering, and now they have a joint stock market. The next day, you'd come in and say, oh, they've discovered central banking. Then a few days later, you'd have all your colleagues clustered around you and you're peering in. Wow, they've got labor unions. What do they think of next? Or half of them have gone communist. Now, in practice, there was no Sims-like economic simulation running in Arthur's office. It was just that instead of a supply-demand curve, Arthur would let the agents in his simulations run wild, resulting in graphs that look like squiggly lines that I don't know where they even come from. You can check it out at uh, the piece at notboring.co. But beyond math or simulation, there are a number of major differences between Arthur's complexity economics and neoclassical economics. In a January 2021 Nature article, Foundations of Complexity Economics, he laid out those differences feature by feature. We'll do a few examples. So in neoclassical economics, the agents are representative with one, two, or N distribution of types. In complexity economics, they're diverse. The organizing principle for neoclassical is equilibrium. In complexity, it's non-equilibrium. The metaphor for neoclassical economics is a well-functioning machine. In complexity economics, it's ecology. In neoclassical economics, agents face well-defined problems. And in complexity economics, they face ill-defined situations. In <laughs> neoclassical economics, agents optimize, whereas in complexity economics, agents face fundamental uncertainty. Then they try to make sense and explore. The list goes on, but I think the takeaway for me is that neoclassical sounds like a model and complexity economics sounds a little bit like the real world. Now, in complexity, Waldrop explained Arthur's economics agents further. He said they would be no more governed by mathematical formulas than human beings are. As a practical matter, of course, they would have to be far simpler than real human beings. The Every Icon NFT project that I use in the cover art for this piece captures the images I have in mind for the simulations. Set the starting conditions and a few parameters and watch what these little dots do. But what if they didn't have to be little dots or bits of code simpler than human beings? What if they could be human beings? I got the vague sense reading the book and then it slapped me in the face when I saw the table in nature. Web3 is a complexity economic simulation played out with real human agents and real money. The Web3 simulation. 
Last night, as I was writing this and trying to pull this bizarre idea together, NFT collector and Nanzao core team member Punk4156 tweeted, Prediction. The dominant theme of PFP communities in 2022 will be capital formation. Allow me to translate. 2021 was the year of the profile picture or PFP NFTs. Depending on how you value them, both CryptoPunks and Board Yacht Club have total market caps or number of NFTs times price per NFT of around $3 billion each. More than just a disconnected network of owners, though, the humans behind the NFT PFPs form communities online and IRL. First, they met in discords, then they met in person at ape-only events at NFT NYC and Art Basel. They've even discussed plans to open up a hotel for ape-owners only. Now, according to Punk4156, those communities of people that have come together based on ownership of similar expensive JPEGs will start pooling money and investing in other things together. They'll compete with crypto VCs using access to the community as potential customers, liquidity providers, and advocates as a competitive edge. Brian Arthur would be proud. To modify his earlier quote, then in this dreamlike idea, you'd go in one morning and say, hey, look at these guys. Two or three weeks ago, all they were doing was trading JPEG pictures of monkeys. And now they've got a community. Then the next day you'd come in and say, oh, they've discovered collective bargaining. Then a few days later, you'd have all your colleagues clustered around you and peering in, wow, they've got venture capital. What do they think of next? Or half of them have gone bananas. Or take the rapid evolution of DAOs. In less than two months, we've gone from Constitution DAO proving it was possible to raise $47 million from 17,000 people in less than a week, to LinksDAO raising $11.8 million to buy a golf course and create an online-offline membership experience. Open Access DAO wants to buy open-source academic research papers. BlimpDAO wants to buy one of the world's 25 blimps. Crasshouse wants to buy an NBA team. Fry's DAO wants to buy fast food franchises. Gas DAO airdrop tokens to people based on how much they paid in gas on Ethereum, a proxy for usage, and wants to turn that group into a coordinated body with a say in the future of Ethereum. On the surface, existing DAOs range from potentially important to silly to downright dumb. But each one is an experiment in, co in coordinating large groups of strangers around a shared mission, and many add new tricks to the pot. Do we need a DAO to buy Subway? Probably not. But Fry's DAO is pushing the boundary on how to structure and operate a decentrally owned and governed group of real-world businesses, each with their own P&L. Are non-fungible olive gardens literally just NFTs representing each of the world's olive gardens patently absurd? Yeah, but when you're here, you're family. And they're also fighting back against OpenSea, taking them down after a takedown request from Olive Garden's parent company, Darden. Are many of the people who joined DAOs doing it purely for speculation and the hope that the governance token, which confers no ownership rights, irrationally moons? Fuck yeah, 100%. A reductionist interpretation of all of this might be that most DAOs are kind of illegal and feigning decentralization to get around the law, or that you don't actually own your JPEGs and anyone can right-click and save them anyway. A purist might say that speculation isn't the point, that purely decentralized governance and censorship resistance are the goal and anything else is just a silly distraction. But a complexity scientist might look at DAOs and NFT communities as a series of real-time, real incentive experiments that are more accurate to human nature than anything they could build in a machine. And they would learn what levers to pull in order to coordinate internet-native groups of strangers around shared beliefs and shared missions. And a pragmatist might look at the fact that people have pumped over $3 billion worth of meaning into something as seemingly silly as pixelated JPEGs of CryptoPunks, or push the value of the people token to $650 million despite losing the bid for the Constitution, or any number of those other things as an opportunity. They might look at the learnings, tools, software, and money as Legos. And they might look for ways to apply those learnings and appeal to the same human desires to solve big, complex problems in both the digital 
and physical world. The Tao for the Future. I read two other books over the break, too. First, The Codebreaker by Walter Isaacson, and two, Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. The Codebreaker is a biography about Jennifer Doudna, a 2020 Nobel Prize winning CRISPR gene editing pioneer. Ministry for the Future is a fictional novel about the world in the near future if we don't get our act together on the climate. Both are about complex, atoms-based challenges that we won't be able to solve with software alone, curing disease and fixing the planet. In Ministry for the Future, the solution that the titular ministry devises to the rapidly worsening climate crisis circa 2030 is a carbon-backed global reserve currency supported by all the world's central banks with a guaranteed payout over time. It was a way, the minister argued, to go long humanity. Life in Besaid's art. We've talked about Klima here before, the carbon-backed algorithmic digital currency that wants to be a black hole for carbon offsets, making it more expensive to buy offsets and therefore to pollute. Eden Dow wants to apply a similar mechanism to future carbon renewables and reductions. I get to cheat a little bit here too. Investing in early stage startups lets me glimpse the future. Over the break, I invested in one company working to help a group with a large environmental footprint reduce that footprint using data science, NFTs, and a liquid open market. I committed to another that's using parent-child DAO structure to hopefully save lives. And I know that these are both painfully vague descriptions, but they're both in stealth, so that's all I can say. Both have taken bits and pieces from objectively silly past DAO and NFT projects and are applying them in really smart ways. Both understand the fact that open, liquid, global capital markets are a hugely important piece of the puzzle. Neither resorts to high-minded language. They've simply watched the simulations, learned, and taken those learnings to tackle really big challenges. This is why they'll succeed where previous attempts to put X physical thing on the blockchain have failed. It's not about the blockchain, it's about the simulations. Those simulations, played out over thousands of iterations, millions of transactions, and billions of dollars, tell us that greed can be good, that speculation can serve a purpose, that memes have value, and that people are willing to spend money to be a part of something bigger than themselves, particularly if there's a potential for a return. The fun part about this is that all of it matters. Whether you're trying to solve world hunger, just fucking around and trying some new mechanism, or aping into a project because you like the art, you're feeding the simulation, adding tools to the toolkit, and pushing future projects forward. That's the thing I'm most excited about in 2022, to see all this wacky, wild stuff we've been up to online turn into solutions to complex physical challenges. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for listening. It's great to be back. Really excited for what we have in store for 2022. And I will see you on Monday. Have a great week. <laughs>